0: Uh, Again, it's going to be Esther, chapter 6, uh, verses 1 through 11, and chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. Oh, if you could please stand while I read. On that night, the king could not sleep, and he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus, And the king said, What honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, Nothing has been done for him. And the king said, Who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, Haman is there standing in the court. And the king said, Let him come in. So Haman came in, and the king said to him, What should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, Whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman said to the king, "For the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, who the king has worn, or which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, on who and on whose head a royal crown is set, and let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials." Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then the king said to Haman, Hurry, take the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so to Mordecai, the Jew who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. So Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Chapter 7. So the king and Haman went in to feast with Queen Esther. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish, and my people for my request. For we have been sold, and I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated." If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent, for affliction is not to be compared with a loss to the king. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he, and where is he, who has dared to do this? And Esther said, A foe and enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, will he even assault the queen in my presence in my own house? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, fifty cubits high. And the king said, Hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thank you, Kyle. Well, good afternoon, everybody. It's great to be back with you. For those of you who are new joining us for the first time, a warm welcome to you. My name is Steve, one of the pastors here. And uh, one of the, well, the main way that we walk through the Bible on Sundays is just by walking through a book. And so right now we are in the, uh, the story of Esther. And so what we've been saying is uh, the main theme of Esther, it's always helpful to remember just what's the one thing you're going to remember 10 years from now after you go through a book. And so the main theme of Esther is the silent sovereignty of God, silent sovereignty, Meaning, uh, what Esther helps give us the eyes to see is because in Esther, you don't see God. He doesn't part the Red Sea. He doesn't do anything flashy. And so what this teaches us is often God is present in our lives, even though he feels absent, uh, even though we can't hear him. And often, um, he works less through the spectacular and extraordinary, but just works through the very ordinary and mundane moments in our lives. And so, that's what we see in Esther. And so, uh, what we're looking at today is embedded within this theme of God's silent sovereignty is a principle here as we look at—now we've finally gotten to this this juicy scene, right, where the arch-nemesis Haman— uh, is put to death. And what we, what we see here in this reversal of Haman and Mordecai is uh, what Jesus shares is at the principle, at the heart of the universe. And he says in Matthew 23, those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Okay, so that, that's the main idea of this section right here. And I mean, it's a huge emphasis in Jesus's teachings. And so let's look at that idea, those who exalt themselves will be humbled, those who humble themselves will be exalted, uh, through these three headings as we look at the story. So Uh, First, number one, we'll look at Haman's pride. Uh, Number two, we'll look at Haman's fall. And then number three, we'll see Mordecai's rise. So Haman's pride, Haman's fall, and then Mordecai's rise. Okay, so first number one, uh, Haman's pride. So Elder Andrew did a great job on uh, on this part in chapter five. So we're just continuing in this theme here. So what happened at the end of chapter five is you could say, Haman had a better day than you and I collectively in the world's eyes. Like, the best day anyone could ask for. So he was invited to have a private dinner with Esther and the king, right? So this is the inner ring of the world's most powerful empire. That's a good day. And as he's walking home, Mordecai again doesn't bow before him, and so he's enraged. And in his rage, he constructs a 75-foot tall gallows to hang Mordecai on. Seventy-five feet. That that should speak to just how badly Haman wanted to hurt this guy and the size of Haman's ego. Okay, so he constructs this gallows, and so the next morning he knows he needs to get permission from the king to do this act to Mordecai. And so Haman's the first—I mean, sunrise. Haman's there in the courtyard to go see the king and ask for permission. However, this is not an ordinary night because it just so happens— On this one night of all the nights in the ten years that Esther spans, the king can't sleep. He can't sleep. And so he's tossing and turning in bed, and he asks for the book of memorable memorable deeds of the empire to be read for him. I guess this is the modern equivalent of you're up at late, you can't sleep, and so you just pull up YouTube or TikTok and start scrolling away, right? So he wants all the great deeds of the kingdom to be read to him. And he learns about from earlier in the story when Mordecai saved his life. And so he says, wait, what's been done to honor this guy? Uh, It's historically known that Persian kings would honor those uh, who did good things because they just knew the simple fact that if they reward loyalty, loyalty begets more loyalty, right? So he wants to reward Mordecai, and they say nothing's been done to reward him. So then Xerxes goes, verse 4, who's in the court? Okay, so remember, the king never makes a decision for himself throughout this entire story. So he wants to just, who, just who's in the court? Tell him to come here. I'll ask them how to honor Mordecai. And this should be hilarious. Haman's the only guy in the court. And the only reason he's there <laughs> is because he's so eager to kill Mordecai. So they're like, oh, well, Haman's in the court. So they, they bring Haman in. And you, just, you have to delight in the ambiguity of the question the king asks him. He says, hey, Haman, What should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman's response is what cements his fate for the rest of the story. He says to himself, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? Okay, and so it's this eye into Haman's heart that gives us a window into the nature of pride as a whole. Okay, and how the Bible talks about pride, because for Haman, he can't, it's not plausible. Like It's not within the realm of possibility that anyone else in the kingdom would be honored other than him. Why? Because for Haman, the entire world, the entire empire revolves around Haman. And this is very telling when we, when we think about what is pride, and how the Bible defines pride through a variety of ways. You can sum it up this way pride is a ongoing attentiveness to the self. Okay, an ongoing attentiveness to the self. and this is revealing because normally as w- when we think of proud people we think of those who like to you know flaunt themselves we think of those who love to be the center of attention right we we think of those people who just they always, you know, anytime they speak, you can tell just they think their insight or their voice is just more important than anyone else in the group. Okay, we tend to think of those people, but when we understand pride to be an ongoing attentiveness to the to the self. It gives us a much broader understanding. So, for example, pride—it's just—it's constant ego calculation. We are constantly thinking, "Am I being appreciated? Am I being noticed?" Are people impressed with me? Am I getting what I deserve? That's pride. Because you're you're constantly fixated on yourself. Or or think about it this way. So usually when we think of pride, we think of those with, you could call it a superiority complex, right? Just the the people who, they've got the goods, they know they've got the goods, they love they've got the goods, and you just feel the pride radiating off them. Right? So it's a superiority complex. However, an, inferior, an inferiority complex where you're constantly beating yourself down, where you're thinking, wow, I didn't perform well enough. I'm not good enough. I'm not doing enough. Or, you know, after you're in a gathering with a bunch of people and you walk away and then you just start replaying the tapes of the stupid things you said, you're like, I can't believe I said that. Do they think I'm an idiot now? You, know, you can't sleep because of it. All these things, you're, what, you're constantly fixated on on yourself. And this was such a... This was such a massive revelation for me, and I hope for those of you who haven't heard this before, maybe for those of you who have and you're being reminded of it now, this was so helpful, because at least for me, where I tend to, and we all err somewhere, right, where I tend to err is the infuriated complex, right? I'm just constantly thinking, like, man, like, you're just not doing well enough. You could do better. Come on, Steve. And so I used to think, oh, yeah, the proud people, those people over there, right, the people who are always, like, flaunting their stuff, but then when it hit me that, no, Steve, you're just as self-absorbed. Right? You're still doing the comparison game. You're just not coming out as well as the other people who you feel like are superior. Right? I'm still addicted to just, how am I doing? I'm staring at myself. And so that's, this is the nature of pride. Right? And we have to have our eyes open to it. Right? This doesn't mean you, you never care about yourself at all, right? to be clear. Right? It's just this constant, right, as we've been saying, ongoing attention. On yourself. That's the nature of pride. Okay, we see it in Haman. All of us manifest it in some way, shape, or form. So next, let's look at what are the consequences of pride. Maybe we need this more. I mean, this is always—pride has been around since the fall in Genesis 3, but we maybe need it more than any culture in human history because everything about our culture actually encourages us to obsess over ourselves. And so let's look at a few ways, as we see it play out in this passage, the consequences of pride. And the first way we see it, and Andrew touched on this a little bit last week, is, put simply, you can't enjoy life when you're constantly attentive to yourself. It just, it saps the joy out of life. So in chapter 3, I mean, Haman's promoted to the top position in the empire. In chapter 5, he has a private feast with the two most important, the other two most important people of the empire. But this entire time, he's miserable because he can't stand the fact that one guy, Mordecai, isn't impressed with him. Right? So it just sours everything that he does. And so as we think about, you know, in, in the modern age, how does when we're constantly fixated on ourselves, how does that sap us of joy? And it can look, it can look like a couple ways. So as one example and for different people, some of these will resonate with more than others, but your friend gets promoted. Your friend buys a sweet house you can't afford. Your friend gets an amazing spouse or amazing children, right? Something wonderful happens to someone that you know, and the first thought you think is, why wasn't that me? Like, that should have been me, And you can't even enjoy good things that happen to other people, because pride always boomerangs back on the self. It's inherently comparative. It's just, how am I doing? What am I getting compared to what other people are getting? Or it can manifest this way. How does it rob you of joy? So I I just officiated a wedding yesterday, and it got got me thinking. So I've done a number of weddings now, and this is pretty common in the wedding planning process. Some of you know this from experience. So they're in the, the couples in the engagement phase, the wedding day is coming, and the some family members of the couple maybe aren't enjoying the wedding planning process as much as they could. What's going on and like family feuds break out between people. What's going on because what often what happens is you have a few family members they have had a fantasy in their mind for decades about how this day needs to go. And when their vision of this day is being challenged by somebody else, they get anxious, they get angry. And what's going on there? Because ultimately it's not really about helping the couple having a great wedding day. It's about actuali- actualiz- actualizing your fantasy of what that wedding needs to look like right? It's, you're not actually serving the couple, you're serving you, or it's about a need to be needed. And so the whole time you're miserable. You, you can't enjoy the fact that something wonderful is about to happen because you have this ongoing attentiveness to the self. Okay, so first, number one, pride saps our joy. Uh, number two, what does pride do? It makes it really hard for us to serve other people. And so here's how, it, like, you kind of have to zoom out to see this. So notice you have The Ark of Haman, and then interspersed throughout Haman's Ark, you have Esther interceding for her people. Right. And so here in chapter 7, verses 1 through 6, I mean Esther is courageously putting her life on the line to save her people, the Jews, God's people. And on either side of that story, it's bookended with Haman's pride and then his fall when he's hung, which we'll get to in a second. And one of the things the author is doing, this is a deliberate structuring that he's doing, he's juxtaposing Haman's pride where everything's about himself. And then Esther here, right, she's not thinking about herself. She's thinking about, how can I care for these people who are close to me? And so because she's being self-forgetful, she's, she's not thinking about, well, does this build well for my security? Does this build well for my reputation? No, it's the opposite of those things. But because she's not hyper-fixated on herself, she's now actually able to serve those she cares about. And that, that's a very lofty example, so let's bring it down to earth a little bit. So let's even we can get personal. Let's talk about what I'm doing right now. Okay, so the preaching of the word is a good and irreplaceable thing that God uses to nourish and strengthen his people in this life of faith. But what happens if I or any other pastor who's up here drives in here on Sunday and then stands up here and the deepest thing driving me is I need you to like me. as I entered ministry, people warned me that was going to be one of the strongest temptations, and I was like, yeah, yeah, whatever. It's a strong, if you don't know this, it is a strong temptation for for any pastor. But if that is the thing that's driving me, that's bad for everybody, (laughs) okay, for so many reasons, and not least of which is, if I'm like, okay, well, what's going to make them happy? What's going to make them impressed? Then I'm going to minimize the parts of God's Word, right, that might confront us, right, because I don't want you to dislike the messenger, and I might, just, I might twist or amplify the things that I think that you're going to like that are in God's Word. Okay, now who am I really serving? I'm not serving you guys, right? I'm serving myself. And you can think about it, this applies to really any role. So think about your job, right? You put together a presentation. You have to do something for a client, right? If your primary thought is, I just I need you to be impressed with me, I need you to like me, I need a promotion— I just, I need to get the well done to give me that, just give me the high that I need to make it to the weekend and then plunge into Monday again. I mean, who are you really serving, right? Are you serving the person you're doing your, you know, X, Y, Z job for, or are you serving yourself? Right, so the invitation God gives us is that this actually frees us to do things for other people, not just as a means to an end for people to like us. Okay, a third thing we see, uh, what it, what are the consequences of pride? Okay, it saps our joy. It doesn't allow us to serve. And then number three, and this is the hardest part about this whole passage, is pride destroys you. Okay, so Haman at the end, right, so Haman is eventually hung on the very gallows that he prepared for Mordecai. Right? You can see that in uh, the end of chapter 7. And as we talk about the main idea of Esther is God's silent sovereignty, i.e., like he is orchestrating all events. He is completely in control. It can be easy to view this story as Haman is simply a pawn in the hands of a conniving God. Okay, but as we talked about a couple weeks ago, we actually see the dynamic in the story of God is, God is 100% sovereign and in control, but we are also 100% responsible, right, for every action we take. And so this is not Haman being... The, the victim, or at the mercy of a conniving God. What this is, is Haman is fully responsible, and what's happened with Haman is, I mean, his life is simply showing with particu- particular clarity the outworking of self-absorption, right? It was Haman's pride that made him construct the gallows in the first place. He wouldn't have been able to be hung on it Right? If he didn't construct it, was Haman's pride and eagerness to kill Mordecai. That's why he was the first one in the courtyard in the morning when, when the king couldn't sleep. It was Haman's pride that made him assume, oh, you, want to, you, want to, you delight to honor a particular man, that must be me. So he gives, you know we'll get to it in a minute, but he gives this you know, amazing uh, picture of being paraded through the streets, and then he has to do it for Mordecai. And how he's hung, actually, so I don't know if this is just the... Um, What's the word I'm looking for? That, like just the translators are too nervous to translate it probably how it should be read, but historically we know that the Persians didn't hang people by a noose. Uh, how the gallows were constructed was it was a giant pole sharpened on the edge and they would drop the person onto it. Okay, so, so the person's impaled. This is a, it is a gruesome image, but we're meant to see it. And what it's showing us is This is the outworking of someone's pride. And (laughs) there's a reason why this principle that Jesus says in Matthew 23 that we alluded to in the beginning, those who exalt themselves will be humbled, is so important that it may actually save your life. Because what Jesus regularly preaches is that the only way to enter his kingdom is to humble yourself. Meaning you have to admit the only grounds I have for being in God's family is Christ's work alone. And then after receiving that, instead of me insisting on being the, on the throne of my life, Jesus is going to be on the throne. Jesus is going to be the Lord of my life. That's the most humbling thing a person can ever do. and It's also the most life-giving thing you can ever do because it's how you enter the kingdom and then how, it's how you enjoy the kingdom and so just out of respect for you all you know one of the main passages one of the main meanings of this passage is you know, just have you submitted yourself to the lordship of Jesus because the outworking of being so self-centered we don't want to receive God's grace and then make Jesus lord is life apart from him right the end of our life on earth may not look as gruesome as Haman but the end's essentially the same. And as C.S. Lewis puts it, I mean, hell is nothing less than God giving people what they've been asking for on earth, which is life apart from God. Or put another way, there are two kinds of people in the world. There are two scenarios. Those who, during their life, they look at God and they say, thy will, thy will be done, and they're brought into eternal life. Or those to whom God says at the end, thy will be done. You can have life apart from me. So pride is always self-destructive. <laughs> okay, so finally, if if we see right, just how pernicious pride is, just how destructive it is on all fronts, let's look at number three: Mordecai's rise. And here we see how can we get out of this right constant attentiveness to the self. So let's go back to chapter six, verse seven where the king says to Haman, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And what does Haman say to the king? Notice he says the phrase, for the, king, for, for the, for the man whom the king delights to honor, he says that phrase multiple times, right? He's just fixed, like, who does the king delight? That's me, okay, so how will he honor me? So for the man whom the king delights to honor, verse eight, let the royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose, royal, and on whose head a royal crown is set. And let him be paraded in the city streets, and let, let a king's official proclaim before him, end of verse 9, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. And then everything about the king's response to verse 10 is hilarious. So then the king says to Haman, hurry, hurry, don't delay, take the robes and the horse, as you have said. So these details were your idea. Remember that, Haman, right? Do it to Mordecai the Jew who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you've mentioned. Okay, do every single thing. And so there's an irony here that's multiplied. So not only was Mordecai about to be executed, now he's going to be lifted up and honored by the king. Haman was at the top, now he's going to be brought low. But also, Haman has to be the one who parades Mordecai through the streets. Like this is one of the greatest reversals in all of human history. Okay, and so what can we learn about this? So Let's go back to Haman's response. So what should be done for the man whom the king delights to honor? <laughs> I think for Haman, this question, it was probably music to his ears. I, I, I like to imagine this was probably the, it was his, like, this was the song he had been waiting for his entire life. Right, because his entire life, he doesn't know if he's enough. And he doesn't really know if he's loved by the king. And so we, there is a sense where we do have to sympathize with Haman because the cry of his heart is the cry of our heart as well. And so let's look at what he says in this next section, giving credit where credit is due. Um, two sermons, one by David Biscrove, another by Tim Keller, were very helpful for me in understanding this. So Haman says, okay, so let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn. What's the deal with the robe? Well, in 1 Samuel 18, is one one section where you see this principle. Jonathan, who is the heir to the throne, he gives his robe to David. And it's Jonathan's way of saying, I love you. And in fact, you should be king rather than me. Okay, so when, when Haman's painting this picture, right, he's not just looking for honor in a general way, right, or love in, in a general way. What he's thinking to himself is, if... Everyone out there can see the king honor me like this. And if I can be honored like this, then I know I'll be enough. Or put this way, if I can just be admired like that by someone as great as that, I'll be okay. If I can be be admired, not just admired, but if I can be admired like that, right? With the king's robe on the king's horse and by someone as glorious as that. That is the cry of every single human soul. Right? We want to be regarded by someone who, by someone we regard, you know, to the uttermost. And uh, not too long ago, I was talking with a friend of mine who's a pastor, and he was telling me, he said, you know, so much of my pastoring is done out of a constant desire to know that I'm worthy and know that I'm enough. And I want people to like me because when he was, I'm sorry if this um, triggers anything in in people, but when he was 12, his father left his family. And the, the last thing his father said to him was, I'm leaving because you're a bad son. If you had been a better son, I wouldn't be leaving. I mean, what kind of wound is that going to cut into a child, right? Because, right, I mean, in a, in a normal world who doesn't look up to their father, and then they get the opposite of being admired like that by someone as great as that. Okay, so that's the cry of Haman. That's the cry of every human heart, and so that's why what you and me need to see is the reason why this story here, this reversal, hits so close to home is because this reversal, this getting the esteem of someone we esteem is the truest story of your life if you're willing to walk in it. Why? Because what happened with Haman, right? Haman wanted to be number one, so he grasped at power and then was thrown down to the pits. Right? But you you have a king of glory who is number one, who is equal with God and he didn't grasp it glory. He didn't count it something to be hoarded. Right? And whereas Haman, right, he reversed places with Mordecai involuntarily. Jesus reversed places with you voluntarily. Okay, by kneeling at your feet to serve you, and by going to the cross to take on your sin and then rise again from the dead. Why? Just to forgive you in a general way? No, to put the robe on you, to adopt you and his family. He says in John 17, Father, I desire that those who belong to me, you and me, in this room, Will have the glory that you gave me before the foundation of the world. Okay, what's, what's, the, what's glory? Is it something abstract? No, glory is it's, it's substantive. It's welcome into the heart of things. It's being regarded. It's being honored. And so in the gospel of Jesus, you are loved like that by someone as great as that. Okay, this will change everything about you as you learn to live it out. And so as we go back to this principle is, what does it mean to humble ourselves so that God may exalt us? Okay, to humble ourselves, as we've seen, it, it doesn't mean we walk around with drooped shoulders and our heads on saying, I'm nobody, I'm nothing. Okay, as we've seen, that's just another form of pride because we're fixated on ourselves. To humble ourselves is, is first to receive the gospel as we talked about earlier. But then out of that, and this is a theme we've been seeing in Esther, it's to, it takes years to grow into, but it's to actually believe that God made you, fashioned you, delights in you, and has put you in this time, in this place for a particular reason to care for the people in your life. There's a reason why He has you in your family, in your workplace, in your neighborhood. It's because He didn't want someone else there, He wanted you. And then you love people out of that confidence that you're given in Jesus. And so just as a closing application here is a way to hopefully make it even a little bit more concrete. So I read this, I read this quote and it stuck with me. And she said, there are two ways of going about the world. We either contemplate or we exploit. We either contemplate or we exploit. This is very helpful for me. So, to have a mindset of you exploit others, it means you engage with other people, right? Whether it's your spouse, a family member, a coworker, a neighbor, mainly through the lens of what can this person do for me? How can they make me happy? How can they just do what I want them to do? How can they, how can they make my life easier? Right? That's, that's our default condition. Or we can take the approach of, contemplate. When she says we either contemplate, what this means is you behold and attend to and engage with the person in front of you without regard to their usefulness. Okay, so regardless of how much it benefits you to befriend them, no matter how they treated you yesterday, or if you're just tired or annoyed, and if, and this is only possible through heart transformation by Jesus, right? But if we Have the gift of Christ, which enables us to to stop, have that ongoing attentiveness to the self right now because we're so filled by the love of Jesus, being loved by someone as glorious as that. Now we can actually attend to people without regard to their usefulness because we're no longer thinking, what are you doing for me? What did you do for me? Does this make me feel better? Does this make me happier? You can actually treat them as Jesus treats you, right? As someone made in God's image, right? He delights to stick with and love to the end. Uh, So let's ask for Him uh, for the power to do that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, this is a challenging passage in so many ways. Um, And I pray that it will challenge and convict those who need to have their eyes open to whether it's in the specific sense of rejecting you and your grace as Lord or they just the broader sense of our constant impulse to fixate on ourselves Lord and open our eyes to the the better way the better way that you invite us to live in which is not thinking of ourselves all the time but instead uh, in the love that you've given us in Jesus going out and caring for others as you so regularly and consistently and expensively care for us.